If you were here with us, you know that last week I began our message by raising the question, should I have a beer? If you were not here this last week, you might want to listen to that sermon online and know the answer to that question. But this morning, I want to begin by raising another question, a different question. And this question is not, should I have a beer, but should I buy a Benz? Now, I'm not primarily asking whether or not you like German engineering, if you appreciate kind of the wisdom of the Germans and their engineering. Uh, For the record, I do. Uh, For five or six years, I owned a 1982 240D Mercedes diesel. And in my opinion, that is one of the greatest engines ever built in the history of car engines. Uh, My car had 450,000 miles on it. It was awesome. And its only problem was is that the air conditioning didn't work and the uh, heating didn't work. And so in Albuquerque summers, I would drive home and in the afternoon, I'd just come home and be like a pool of sweat. I lost three or four pounds every day, actually. I recommend that. If some of you are wondering about losing weight, you can go this afternoon, turn off your air conditioning. But I'm not raising the question because I'm wondering whether or not you like German engineering. I raise the question because a Mercedes-Benz has historically been one of these cars that's associated as a luxury car. And so I'm really raising the question, how much is it okay for a Christian to indulge in? In other words, how much is too much? And this is an important question for us who inhabit a very affluent culture, a very affluent world. And we live in arguably the most affluent culture in the history of the world. And so this question as to how much is too much, what is it okay for a Christian to purchase? What kind of car, what kind of clothes, what kind of shoes, what kind of house is it okay for a Christian to purchase? And when have we gone too far? When are we becoming self-indulgent? This is the question that I'm raising this morning. And it's a question that if you've been around for a while, you've probably asked it about the purchases of other people. You've wondered, how is it possible that a Christian could spend so much money on that car or on that house or whatever? Uh, Maybe you've asked it about the church. How is it that a church could spend so much money on the carpet or on the lighting or on the air conditioning? You know, we should be enduring it today, amen? No, (laughs) nobody agrees with that. But we raise these questions not only about others and about the church, but if we are sensitive, if we do find ourselves wrestling kind of with our privilege and with the burden of being a rich Christian in an age of hunger, you have no doubt wrestled with the tension when you've gone through and you've kind of like worked through these complex financial questions about your budget and about your car and about your home. You know, our family's been uh, searching and we recently purchased a home in Sierra Madre and it, it raised some ethical issues for me. How much is too much? I mean, this is an expensive place to live, right? I just moved from, from Albuquerque and houses there were way cheaper than they are here. You know, and, and you've raised these questions if you shop for furniture, houses, or whatever. And these are the questions that we want to wrestle with this morning. Now, you might say, well, Josh, I don't want to wrestle with that question. And I don't either, to be honest with you. What I want to do is I want to go out and I want to spend my money on whatever I want to spend it on without anybody asking me questions. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you just can't 
do that? You have to ask this question. You have to wrestle with the hard sayings of Jesus. And we're going to be doing that this morning because, interestingly, we're going to be looking together at a section of Scripture where Paul, in a very unique passage, opens up for us a very tough, a very countercultural financial decision that he made. And he shares with us kind of his own processing in making this decision. Now, this chapter, chapter 9, 1 Corinthians, is part of an ongoing conversation that the Apostle Paul has been having with the church in Corinth about the issue of food offered to idols. And so I said last week, well, the reason why we raised the question, should I have a beer instead of should I eat meat offered to idols, is because most of us have never asked the question, should I eat meat offered to idols? It's just not an ethical dilemma that we face. But it certainly was an ethical dilemma that the church in Corinth was wrestling with. And so they were raising this question to Paul, should we eat meat offered to idols? And this took Paul into this long digression, this long discussion about the issue of Christian freedom and liberties. And what kind of decisions should we make in such gray areas like eating meat offered to idols or buying a Mercedes or of uh, drinking a beer? And Paul is talking with us about those issues in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 down to chapter 10. What's interesting is at the end of chapter 8, he said, look, um, I'm encouraging you to give up your right to eat meat for the sake of the weaker Christian. And then as an example of somebody who gave up his rights for the sake of others, Paul actually presents his own decision to give up his right to financial remuneration in order to benefit the, the church and to serve the gospel. And so I want to walk with you through this chapter. And as we do so, we're going to learn three principles that help us when we enter into complex financial decision-making. And the first thing we're going to see is something about freedom. Secondly, something about sacrifice. And thirdly, something about discipline. And they all should inform kind of our understanding of this complex issue of finances. Notice first, he talks to us about freedom. Look what he says in verse 1. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So Paul says, look, I have all of the marks of a true apostle. I've seen the risen Jesus. I've established a church. You are my work. And he says, look, as an apostle, I have rights. I have freedom. Am I not free? Now, when Paul here talks about his rights and his freedom, what is he talking about? Well, I want you to see that Paul is not talking about a freedom to do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whomever we want. Now, I think when Americans think about freedom, when we talk about freedom, oftentimes what we think of is the freedom to do what we want, with whom we want, whatever, whenever we want, without any kind of constraints or encumbrance. But that's not the kind of freedom Paul is talking about here. You see, biblical freedom, and actually freedom according to the great thinkers throughout human history, has always been a freedom, not from something, but a freedom to do the good. And so, for example, in the Old Testament, after the children of Israel were freed from slavery, 
God brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai because after being freed from slavery, he gives them his law. In other words, they're not set free to do whatever they want with whomever they want. They're set free in order that they might serve God and worship him. That is what true freedom is. You see, you know and I know that simply doing what you want doesn't mean you're free, does it? Because the problem comes into that complex little issue of what you want. A lot of us want the wrong thing, and we become enslaved to twisted and destructive desire. And so Paul says, that's not the kind of freedom I'm talking about, nor is it a freedom in this realm of finances to simply be greedy and self-indulgent. Sometimes when Christians, you know, we start talking about this issue, we think, oh, I'm free. Don't judge me. This is a personal issue. And yet they live greedy, self-indulgent lives. There's no percentage of their budget that is invested in the ministry of the church and the ministry of the gospel. There's no percentage of their budget that goes to serving the needs of the poor. And we are not free, those of us who have affluence, to do whatever we want with our money because Paul said later, command those who are rich to do good and to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share. And so those of us who have affluence and who have riches, now I know some of you, just as a little pause, you might think, wait a second, I'm so glad you're not talking to me because I'm not one of those rich and affluent people. Well, listen, it's all relative, isn't it? Because relative to the rest of the world and relative to the history of the world, you are rich and affluent. Now, it's true, you can always compare yourself to someone who is more self-indulgent and who buys more things and makes more money than you, and you can walk away feeling frugal and middle class, right? But when we talk about riches and affluence, if you were here months ago when uh, Pastor Don Sanukian came, does anybody remember how he defined riches? I listened to this sermon. I was like, really? That's what the Bible? <laughs> you know, it's if you have more than a shirt on your back <laughs> and food in your stomach. So that includes most of us. Amen? So Paul's not talking about freedom to do whatever we want. He's not, freedom about, he's not talking about freedom to be self-indulgent. What he's talking to here is about freedom to enjoy the fruit of one's labor. You see, when he says, I'm an apostle, am I not free? What he's going to say next is he's going to say, I have freedom to work in, in the ministry and receive remuneration for my work as a minister. And he launches here in verses 3 down to verse uh, 12 into the strongest and the longest argument in the entire Bible to pay ministers. And so you better pay attention. <laughs> and he marshals some pretty weighty witnesses. He begins in verse 3, he says this, This is my defense to those who had, eat, who had examined me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as other apostles and the brothers of our Lord and Cephas do? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have, to, who have no right to refrain from working for a living? And what he's saying here, he's saying, look, do we not have a right as we go and we minister to the church in Corinth to have our needs met, to have food and drink and even our families cared for? And then he says, verse 7, he says, consider the soldiers and the farmers, and the shepherds. Verse 7, he says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? He says, look, if you are serving the military, you're not expected to support yourself as you go off overseas. Rather, you expect that the nation who you serve is going to fund your, your, your salary and whatnot. 
And he says, and who plants a vineyard without first eating any of its fruit? And who tends a flock without getting some of its milk? He said, look, you, you know a, uh, a farmer. He's out there working hard his land. Can he not partake of his crops? And a shepherd who's out tending his flock, can he not drink the milk of the flock that he's serving? He's like, no, somebody who's serving in those fields can share in the fruit of their labor. And then he says in verse 8, do I say these things on human authority? Is this simply as you look out at agriculture and and husbandry and uh, the military? He says, no, consider the law of Moses. He says, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. So this is a pretty fascinating Old Testament law. So in order to enhance the efficiency of their farming, they would enlist the use of these oxen who would pull these plows and they would plow their fields. And he says, look, when the oxen is plowing the field, don't muzzle the ox. Let the poor ox eat while it, while it uh, farms your, your land. Don't muzzle them to increase efficiency and profitability. He says, no, let the, let the poor ox eat. And look what Paul says, though. He says, is it for the oxen that God is concerned? God is not just concerned about those oxen. I think the law does reflect a concern for oxen. But there's something bigger going on here. He says, verse 10, does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. He says, if we have sown in spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? And do you see what he's saying? He's saying, look, he says, you, you don't prevent a shepherd from, eating, from drinking the milk or a farmer from eating his crops or a soldier from taking a salary from the nation. You don't prevent an oxen from sharing in the grain as they're working. And he's like, look, there's a principle here, and it's in God's word. Those who work in the ministry of the gospel should be allowed to share in the fruit of the gospel, and they should have their financial needs taken care of. Then he says in verse 13, he calls now upon the, the, the service of the priests in the temple to support his argument. He says, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? And so people would bring their gifts down to the priest to have them slaughter it and then to offer it in the proper manner, in the proper way to atone for their sins or to connect with God or to engage in worship. And the leftover meat, do you know who'd get to eat that meat? It'd be the priests. And it's his, his, his kind of like trump card and his whole argument that ministers of the gospel have a right and they have a privilege and they have freedom to receive financial remuneration for their ministry of the gospel. He calls Jesus to witness. He says, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Or as Jesus said in Matthew 10, the workman is worthy of their wages. Now, Paul is making a point that is clear throughout the whole of Scripture when it comes to those who engage in work. And it's a simple principle that those who work have a right to compensation for their work. 
Now, I think we can expand. His primary application here is to those who are engaged in gospel ministry for the church. And he says they have a right to, to receive financial remuneration. But I think the principle could be expanded to others who offer their gifts and their service to the church. And for example, uh, some of you, and, and oftentimes it happens in the church, uh, some of you might have specialties and areas of expertise because of your profession. And so you're a contractor or an electrician or a plumber or maybe a professional musician. And sometimes the church will hit you up for a bro deal. Has this ever happened? You know, hey, um, I heard you, and then they want to get you to come and do something for free. But I think the principle Paul is making here is like, look, people whose livelihood, their bread and butter depends upon their work as a contractor or electrician or a plumber or a musician or whatever, like they actually have a right to receive fair and generous compensation for their work. But I think it goes even beyond receiving fair and generous compensation for work. I think it goes on to just this principle of of enabling someone to enjoy the fruit of their labor. I mean, think about this ox. You see one of those guys just plowing out in the field? Like, I just imagine, have you ever seen a cow eat grass? Don't they look so happy? They're just out there, just there, just, they were made to eat grass, not the corn that we feed them oftentimes in our feedlots. That's another sermon. (laughs) But it's okay to enjoy the fruit of your labor, or put it like this. If you, through delayed gratification, and through hard work, and through putting yourself through school, and for some of you, immigrating here from a different country, and beginning at the very ground level, and working your way over time up, you start to, through delayed gratification, and effective saving, and through hard work, start to amass yourself goods and resources and whatnot, The Bible says God gives us all things richly to enjoy. It's good and it's an okay thing. You know, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So go ahead and enjoy the fruit of your labor. This is what Paul, I think, is getting at. There's freedom within the Christian life to receive compensation for your work and then to enjoy the fruit of your labor. There is freedom. There is even dare we say, a right for us to enjoy the things that we've worked hard to attain. But I want you to see back in the text what Paul does here. This is fascinating. So he builds up this tremendous argument, the strongest, the longest argument we have in the entire Bible that you ought to, that that a minister has a right to receive compensation for his work. He builds this whole thing up in order to say, I have renounced this right. Look what he says in verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure every anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of Christ. And then in verse 15, he says, but we have, I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. And then in verse 19, for though I am free from all I mean, in verse 18, what then is my reward that in preaching the gospel, I present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel? Isn't this interesting? Paul goes to great lengths to say, look, I have every right for you, church, to 
to support me. But I have renounced that right. I have taken to making tents in Corinth to fund my own ministry so that I can present the gospel free of charge. And Paul here is teaching us a second principle when it comes to these complex financial issues. One is freedom. Friends, you have freedom to enjoy the fruit of your labors. Not freedom to be greedy, not freedom to be indulgent, but you have freedom to work hard and to enjoy the fruit of your labor. But there's a second principle that we need to bring to the discussion, and it's the principle of our willingness to sacrifice our freedom for the sake of others. This is Paul. This is what he's doing. Now, the question is raised, why in this instance does Paul actually renounce his right to receive remuneration for his work in the gospel? He doesn't always do it. In the church in Philippi, he actually received some financial support for him. They did fund his ministry, and he he willingly took it. But here he doesn't take it, he renounces it. Why? Well, one answer to that question is context. In the culture of Corinth, it was very common for a client-patron relationship to develop between wealthy citizens and the sophists who would go and do their oratory and their rhetoric in the city. And so a a sophist, you know, we've talked about these guys over the last few months, they'd come in, and if they were a great rhetorician, there would be a wealthy patron who'd come and say, hey, look, I'll fund your work, and the sophists would say, fantastic, the last thing I want to do is to be seen doing menial labor, because that's what all the low-class, low-status people do, and I'm a good, affluent, you know, sophist, you know, so he gets, but it was a quid quo pro relationship. It was to, I scratch your back and you scratch mine. And so the client, the sophist, would have to use his oratory to boast and to brag about his patron. And so it was not dissimilar to politicians who take big campaign contributions. It's never without strings attached, right? Like, it's always this quid quo pro thing, like, you do this for me and you've got to come back and, and do a favor for me. And this was happening in Corinth. And Paul says, look, the last thing I want to do is enter into a quid quo pro with this church, you know. There's some people here who want to use me. And so he cuts the ties of financial connection in order to have freedom in proclaiming the gospel. My old pastor told me a story of a... uh, a lady who walked into his office one time and she was super unhappy about the music. Could you imagine somebody in a church being unhappy about music, you know? So she came in, she was complaining about the music, and she said, look here, pastor, I tithe. And the way I view my tithe is it's kind of like a tax to the government. And so you kind of belong to me. You have to do what I'm telling you. He just looked at me and said, lady, I don't belong to you. And I would rather renounce any salary than answer to you. I don't answer to you, I answer to Jesus. And this is Paul. And so the reason why he renounced this right in this context was because he didn't want to have strings attached, but I think there was a different reason. It wasn't just contextual. There was a very personal reason, Paul declares. Look at what he says down in verse 15. He says, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. And notice all of the eyes and mys and my owns as the text goes on. He says, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, 
That gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Do you see his tone? He's like, look, church, I'm not answering to you. I'm answering to Jesus who put me to the task here. He says, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in preaching the gospel, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make use of my full right in the gospel. It's interesting because in this text, Paul talks about how the decision he made was not the decision that the apostle Peter made or that James made or that uh, the other apostles made. The other apostles didn't make. This was a personal decision that Paul made in this particular context. And so too, what you do with your money, what you do with your home, what you do with your cars, it's not a private issue just with you, but it is personal, and it's a personal issue between you and Jesus. And this is how Paul views himself. He's ultimately answerable to Jesus who has commissioned him. And so the issue was contextual. Second, it was personal. But thirdly, I want you to see that his his decision ultimately was missional. Verse 19, he says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I may win more of them. This is Paul at his best. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those who were under the law as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Why? That I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul says, to the weak, I became weak. In the first century, for somebody to make tents with their own hands was menial labor. It would be associated with those of low status and low rank and low class. And Paul says, I willingly abandon the the prestige of, of somebody who would be like a sophist who would come in and just do my rhetoric and my oratory. I came in, he says, instead, like a, a manual labor, just like all of the weak and the powerless ones in the city of Corinth, so that I might communicate the good news that God did not become one of prestige, but one who is weak and powerless and connected with them and communicated the gospel to them. But his broader point is that he's making this radical countercultural decision for the sake of the gospel. It's for the sake of others. It's for the benefit of others. It's personal, it's contextual, and it's missional. Now, question. When it comes to your stuff, like think for a moment about your stuff. Some of us have lots and lots of stuff. We've got car stuff, and we've got clothes stuff, and we've got uh, house stuff, and we've got garage stuff. Anybody have stuff in your garage? We've got stuff in our closets. We've got, we're just overwhelmed with all kinds of stuff, aren't we? Ultimately, your stuff doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. It's been entrusted to you. You're a steward. And so as a steward, you are held accountable to Jesus for what you do with what he has entrusted you with. 
Now, why has he given you all of that stuff? Why has he given you all of these resources? Why has he given you a nice home or a nice car or whatever? Is it so you can, as an individual, just enjoy everything yourself? Absolutely not. What he entrusts us with, he calls us to use in the service of others out of love for neighbor, out of a desire for the gospel to use our home and to use our cars and to use our bank accounts and our, and our resources in order to serve and benefit the gospel and, and, our, and our giftings. You know, there are people in this church, it's pretty cool right now, uh, we've been engaged in this project with uh, a house, nor, uh, our North Hermosa house, and then we have a house on South Hermosa, and those houses have been being renovated for our youth pastor and our worship director. And it's been done to a large degree with volunteers in this church, people who are professional contractors or electricians or whatever, who invest at expense to themselves uh, their labor into those projects. Now, they don't need to. They, they have a right to some remuneration for their, for their work, but they actually have chosen to willingly lay that aside for the sake of others, for the sake of the gospel. And that is a beautiful thing. So what about you? Like, what are you laying aside? What are you using for the sake of your neighbor, for the sake of the gospel, for the service of the church? What are we using our resources for? This is, this is when we engage in all ethical issues, this is the question. So he invites us to think through the lens of freedom, secondly, through the lens of sacrifice, finally, and much more quickly, through the lens of discipline. We're going to move through that. Discipline. Notice what he says in verse 24. There's this great text about self-discipline. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So he says, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest having preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. This last week, I was reading a, uh, an interview with Magic Johnson. And it was about uh, how he, you know, his late night meeting with LeBron James that brought the king to Los Angeles. Can we be happy about that? Can we be glad that the Lakers are finally going to return, hopefully, Lord willing, to their former glory? And uh, anyway, in the interview, you know, the, the questioner was saying, you know, did you ever think that, you know, once again, after, you know, this dismal last few years of trade talks and of drafts and all this stuff, that did you think you would land this kind of star power? And Magic said, yeah. He said, I'm Magic Johnson. <laughs> He says, I, I, we win, I win championships. This is what we do. This is what I do. I'm Magic Johnson. And you know, the question that, that you have when you read an article like that, you're like, Magic, you can talk the talk, but can you play the game? Like, will the Lakers come spring, will they get game? And will they win? That's the question. And to get from the fall to the spring requires self-discipline and hard work. And Paul is saying, look, it's not enough for us to talk the talk, church in Corinth, church in Sierra Madre. Like, it's not enough for us just to go talk about Bible and Jesus and the way of Jesus and all this stuff. 
Like, do you walk the walk? Do you live a life of self-sacrifice, self-denial, of sacrificial love, and all of this? And Paul says, in order to do it, it requires self-control and discipline. I don't know about you guys, but I find that the default mode, like, does anybody else, is anybody else in the same boat with me? Like, do you find it just incredibly easy to spend money on yourself? Like some of you, I know, like you're frugal and you're like, your problem is hoarding and you've got like incredible, like large bank accounts, way more than, like you've got your own issues, okay? So don't judge the rest of us. (laughs) But I just find it easy to save money, to spend money on myself or just spend money in general. Like it's, it's so easy to spend money and with credit cards, it's even easier to spend money. And so it requires self-discipline. It requires beating your body and bringing your check count and your credit card and your wallet into subjection in order that that thing might be disciplined so that the use goes outside of self to serve and to benefit others. Amen? This is what Paul is calling us to, is to self-control and self-discipline and beating your checkbook, beating your checking account into subjection. Now, of course, the only power to move forward in this kind of life of self-discipline is grace. Guilt doesn't get you there, right? Like, uh, in some ways, I hope that you walk out of here and you feel a bit guilty today. And usually, my experience is, is that you love me for it. Like, people are like, oh, pastor, thank you. You made me feel so guilty today. Yes, sometimes you should be feeling guilty because you've just been greedy and self-indulgent, so stop it. But ultimately, the power to live into this kind of life of generosity is not guilt, it's grace. And this is Paul, like, what motivated him from being like this really strident, you know, tight, you know, Pharisee to being this extravagant, generous man? It was an encounter with the grace of God. The one who is rich, who for our sakes became poor, so that through his poverty, we might become rich. And may that good news sink deep down into your hearts. And may it go down so much that it drives you out to self-discipline and self-control so that you might live a life of radical generosity. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we praise you. We thank you for your goodness, for your grace to us. And we ask, O oh God, that you would sink your generosity deep into our hearts, that your muchness would expose our supposed lack, that endlessly receiving from you, we might endlessly be those who give and give and give and serve and love. And we ask this in the name of your son.